Today on the Bill Kelly Show podcast, Canada will allow fully vaccinated American leisure travelers as of August the 9th. Ontario's science advisory table also unveiling its suggestions for the return to school. We'll chat with Dr. Peter Uni. How will the border reopening to fully vaccinated Americans impact tourism? Global news anchor Farah Nasser goes one-on-one with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And foreign actors will seek to interfere in the next Canadian election. How do we stop them? Can we stop them? The Bill Kelly Show podcast is now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ontario's science advisory table has released a a list of recommendations for the return of in-person learning this fall. And as Global Sandy Salerno tells us, it sounds like this coming school year could be a lot different than the one we just went through. Three scenarios for back to school this fall are laid out in the report under the categories of low, moderate and high. When the risk of community transmission and hospitalizations are considered low, then things like masking, distancing and cohorting rules should be scrapped. But when the risk increases, the science table recommends that masking and cohorting be brought back, mostly for those in the younger grades. Even when the risk of COVID-19 transmission is high and hospitalizations go up, the experts say schools should keep their doors open. A transition to remote learning they believe should only be considered under what they call a catastrophic scenario. The panel is also recommending that extracurriculars return in the fall, saying things like choir practice and sports can be taken outdoors to mitigate risk. Sandy Salerno, Global News. And our opening guest this morning is Dr. Peter Uni, friend of the show, director of Ontario Science Table and a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Toronto. We say good morning to Dr. Peter Uni. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine, thank you. And you? I'm not too bad. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, there's a number of uh, recommendations and suggestions within uh, what you are uh, laying out there. Was there much debate, much back and forth at the table regarding uh, you know what we see before us today? I mean, we had intense discussions, of course, you know, and one of the of the issues uh, really is, you know, where to start uh, in, in fall. Nobody can tell where we are, but we just need to be aware of that. It's relatively unlikely, so don't get your hopes up too much that we will, um, you know, start anywhere else than in the moderate risk scenario that we are suggesting. The point is, you know, we're uh, continuously opening up more and there will be a time where we just have basically uh, spent everything we have in terms of credits through the vaccination because we open up to more and cases start to grow then a bit and what is the most likely scenario is that we will start in the moderate risk scenario so kids need to be masked etc etc but uh, we'll see then where this goes the important part for this for for all these discussions that, that that we should have is we need to make sure that in the future we don't use schools anymore as a lever to to control the pandemic. This is something which hasn't worked out particularly well for our kids and we need to be aware of that. There was a lot of harm and we try to avoid that in the future by having reasonable measures in place. So starting with the, if, if school started tomorrow, you're suggesting we would be in the moderate risk scenario and, and obviously things can change between now and the start of September, but let's just say it's the moderate risk scenario come September. So that would mean everyone's back in school, but everyone is still distancing and still wearing masks? 
probably this will be the case. We need to be aware of that, you know, that Delta has moved the goalpost. We repeatedly talked about that. That's unfortunate for every single one of us who would like the pandemic to be over, but it's not because of Delta. And um, the point is then that that it's relatively likely that we will have, we will see a slow uptick in cases during the next few weeks. And we just need to be aware of that, that we shouldn't gamble here and we should try to find a solution that is absolutely safe for our our kids and for everybody. And the slow uptick in cases is relative to the reopening of the economy, right? This is absolutely true, yes. So, you know, this step three, we will start to see the effect of step three at the earliest about two and a half weeks from now. And then we'll see how this goes. What we see also is, you know, that uh, behavior of people changes. We see that in our mobility indicators. We've never been as mobile as we are right now since the beginning of the pandemic. And of course, this comes at a price. But right now, if we continue to push with vaccines, we might still be able, you know, to uh, to equal this out and to balance the power here between uh, our reopening on one side and uh, vaccination on the other side. We need to keep Delta in check. Our guest this morning is Dr. Peter Uni, Director of Ontario's Science Table and a Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at the University of Toronto. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show on 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick in for Bill this week. Let's chat about catastrophic scenarios. What's the likelihood of a catastrophic scenario occurring this fall, this winter, next spring, and what would that do to the school system? Oh, uh, this is absolutely uh, in our own hands. You know, if we do something similar than uh, the United Kingdom or the Netherlands, the likelihood would be very high. If we don't get ahead of ourselves or a bit wise with our choices, we should be relatively okay. Meaning there is most likely a wave, a Delta wave, but the wave should be sort of under control. The catastrophic scenario would be a scenario where we have uh, basically pulled all the levers um, for uh, controlling the pandemic and we still can't get it under control, meaning all the non-essential businesses are closed, including no indoor dining, cinemas, etc. We have curbside pickup again and we're approaching a situation where the ICUs are again, uh, you know, near capacity and they can't uh, have more COVID-19 patients. That would be a catastrophic scenario. Or another one would be when we see that the impact of Delta or a new variant is so big on children that we start to have a a real challenge, uh, you know, with uh, putting children at risk. That's the scenarios where we could consider to, uh, you know, uh, deviate from from in-person learning. But everything before should not result in schools being closed, but it, of course, should result in increased of uh, preventative measures. You mentioned Delta variant moving the goalposts. Is the Delta variant also the wild card because we don't know how it would affect the school system? Uh, the Delta variant, of course, is a wild card. What we know right now from preliminary data is that if somebody is infected on average, the, uh, the viral concentration in the upper respiratory tract is about 1,000 times higher than with the original wild type that created the first and second wave. And we need to be aware of that, meaning uh, this is probably one of the major reasons that it's so much more transmissible. And uh, this means we now need to, when we go back to school, start to tread very carefully. One thing is, as I uh, implied already repetitively before, 
as a society, we should not push for more than the step three for the reopening before schools are opening. You know, this should be the next big step. We have step three. This gives us a lot of liberties. Let's stay there. Absolutely. And then the next thing would be to open schools. And then we need to see, it depends on the vaccine rollout, if more people get vaccinated, we now need to get all the age groups, you know, towards 85% of first doses. And then many, many people actually just receiving their second doses. This will help us tremendously. We need to take it very seriously. It's not the same situation anymore than with Alpha. We're chatting about Ontario's science advisory table recommending a much different school year come the fall, which includes loosening masking, distancing, and cohorting rules when the risk is low. Why was it important to also include extracurricular activities in this report? Well, again, you know, what we, what we see is that uh, especially also for uh, families that are uh, struggling more socioeconomically, the uh, extracurricular activities are just really important. And what, what uh, my colleagues uh, and ourselves just uh, wanted, wanted uh, to do is just to cover all the different aspects in, in, uh, in school as comprehensively as we can. This will never be perfect, but we just need to be aware of, we can't have just this conditioned reflex. Okay, there's a problem ahead with the pandemic, which just basically restricts schools first. Uh, students uh, and their children don't have, you know, the same lobby than uh, than other entities here. The uh, border is going to reopen August 9th. Is this going to have any impact on a return to school, do you think? No, I do not believe so. You know, with the border opening, the point really is we need to focus on, um, and that's what is being done, on the fully vaccinated people who don't need to quarantine anymore. One of the challenges, obviously, is if you're be, uh, below the age of 12, you can't get vaccinated yet. So what uh, what was uh, being done is, you know, just finding some sort of compromise for families with young kids, as my own family, for example. So uh, here you are, two negative tests should be okay is being said, you know, at day, at day uh, zero when you enter the country and at day eight. And that's a bit of a risk, a residual risk, but I see why they did the compromise. What we want to do with our border control is to avoid that, you know, new variants make it into the country. And the challenge there is, if you don't keep your border clean, uh, when you become aware of a new variant that is actually a real challenge, it's already too late. It's already in the country, especially Ontario is very prone for that. You know, remember all Alpha, we were very early with Alpha. We got it from the UK. Delta, again, we most likely got it from the UK as well. Do you expect if cases surge even a bit in Canada after the border reopening that that border will be closed again? I couldn't possibly tell you. No, I'm not competent to answer the question. We need to be aware of that. The search is per se as long as this is not a new variant. And you will know that much later. You know, this takes a while until the growth starts to happen so that that becomes visible. If we have searches during the next few weeks, this is entirely because of our own behavior. This hasn't got to do much with the travel. The travel only, uh, only starts to kick in, you know, uh, then much later. If something would happen, let's assume two weeks from now, a new variant comes aboard and is uh, in the province of Ontario, for example, we will only start to really realize that in growth, perhaps two to three months later. At the beginning, this all goes very slow and it's very deceiving. Therefore, you need just to have a preventative measure there, keep the borders clean by just admitting people who are fully vaccinated and test once negative, at least. Uh, any parents who are listening today uh, regarding the school uh, recommendations, uh, should they be f- 
feel comforted in knowing that, you know, there's a plan in place, or at least when the province announces that plan, that things will be a little bit closer to normal? I think what is important to realize that we shouldn't gamble with, you know, making things look normal when they're not yet. The important part here is there was a lot of investment from the Ministry of Education, for example, into ensuring that the ventilation system and filtration, etc., is much better. That's really important. There are concepts in place regarding testing. Um, you know, we have vaccines and can actually keep also the younger students safest by just ensuring that all the parents, all the siblings, all the staff, including teachers, are fully vaccinated. That will help. All of that will help. It is a change and it, it is really for the better. If we didn't have Delta, so be it, we have it now, we really would be through with that and it would look normal. Right now, we just can't gamble and we'll need to assume at the beginning of the school year that we're in a moderate risk scenario. So masks and cohorting and distancing are still part of the game, unfortunately. Dr. Uni, really appreciate the time. Thanks for uh, sharing some insight into the recommendations. Thanks a lot for having me. Dr. Peter Uni, Director of Ontario's Science Table and a Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at the University of Toronto, as the advisory table recommending that extracurricular activities return to you know school life, masking requirements be loosened, distancing be loosened as well, cohorting rules also loosened when the risk is low, closing schools would only be done in a catastrophic scenario. And this is when, you know, we're, we're basically back into lockdown. You know, with vaccination rates where they are, a catastrophic scenario right at this moment is hard to believe. But <laughs> with the Delta variant out there and, and who knows what other variants are being, you know, morphed into right now off Delta or other variants, uh, we're keeping our fingers crossed. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canada will fully allow vaccinated American leisure travelers as of August the 9th. Yes, American citizens and permanent residents who want to come to Canada for non-essential reasons and are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 will be allowed to do so starting on that day. The Prime Minister credits rising vaccination rates and declining COVID-19 cases for the decision to begin opening borders to the U.S. and international travelers. Here's what he had to say yesterday. As uh, we made decisions around reopening uh, to the world in early September and uh, to American travelers uh, a few weeks before that, uh, we kept the American government uh, fully apprised of exactly those issues. Uh, we will continue to work with them, but understand and respect uh, that every country makes its own decisions about uh, what it does at its borders. Well, speaking of every country, how about uh, the U.S. of A.? Is the American side reopening as well? Now, not exactly, says White House Press, Secre Press Secretary Jen Psaki. We are continuing to review our travel restrictions. Any uh, decisions about reopening travel will be guided by our public health and medical experts. Um, we uh, take this incredibly seriously, but we look uh, and are guided by our own medical experts and not in a, we're not, uh, I wouldn't uh, look at it through a reciprocal uh, intention. All right, so there are the stages set on August the 9th. Uh, Frederick Dimanche is the director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism management at Ryerson University and joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show. Frederick, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, this is obviously an exciting announcement for many, a frightening one for others. Is the timing right? 
Well, it is it is exciting, at least for the tourism industry, for sure, because that's what the industry has been waiting for for weeks. You know, you remember that already in June, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau said that the border might reopen in a few weeks, and it was always a matter of in a few weeks. And now we know. We know that August 9th, the border will be reopening to the American tourists. And that's certainly very welcome news for all the, the people who are uh, normally counting on American tourists to make money during the summer. And I'm talking about the attractions, I'm talking about the hotels, the restaurants across the border, um, you know, destinations uh, along the Ontario border will certainly benefit from that uh, as well. Now, the question is, how many Americans will cross the border and uh, under what conditions? We don't know yet. Yeah, I can imagine a flood of them coming up here because, as we know, Americans... Uh, when they do uh, vacation or travel to Canada, it's much longer than Canadians do in the U.S. So, you know, as I said earlier in the show, uh, tourism operators, cities like Niagara Falls are licking their chops. How big of a issue is this for a city like Niagara Falls or a border city like Windsor? Oh, it's, it's very significant. We, we don't seem to realize this. When we talk about international tourism to Canada, we think about the Europeans, the Chinese, the Indian, the Mexicans, et cetera, et cetera. But we have to remember that 90% of the economic impact is made by American travelers to Canada. So it's very, very significant. And that impact is a daily impact. It's, it's you know, they come in and out every day, every week, every month. Of course, there is a seasonality effect in travel and tourism. We are missing out on the big summer opportunity, basically, because by August 9, it will be already the end. We are moving towards the end of the summer. Let's remember that the Americans are going back to school for the kids uh, already by mid-August. But nonetheless, that means that for the fall semester, there will be opportunity for Americans to cross the border. And certainly it is good news for all the attractions along the border. Critics of the reopening will say that the federal government has finally bowed to pressure from the U.S., uh, lobby groups, border cities. Is that a fair criticism, or or was this did this have to happen now? Well, I think, you know, the pressure was coming from all sides, not just from the American side, but also from the Canadian uh, travel industry side. But as you noted in your introduction, uh, the Americans have not announced that they were reopening the border. In fact, they have announced that they will push back the day for reopening. So I, I wouldn't say that the Americans have been uh, very strong in, in uh, you know, trying to push uh, the, the federal government to reopen the border. That's probably not fair. Those decisions are made by each government independently from each other, uh, mostly on uh, health reasons. Interesting to note that yesterday's announcement was also coupled with new reports out of the United States where, you know, the vaccination rate has really stalled, infection rates and hospitalizations and deaths are back on the rise. Um, How soon could we see the border reclosed? Because of even though, you know, people are fully vaccinated, there are, you know, a minuscule amount of cases where they are still testing positive. Yeah, there's certainly some cases. Actually, that's one of the questions for for all of us is that we don't know exactly how the vaccination um, vaccinated people are going to be controlled at the border. That's one unknown. We don't know under which circumstances they're going to be tested. Uh, are they going to be tested at the land borders as much as they will be at the airports? We still don't know about this. So, as as you know, for the past 18 months, it's been a, a week to week. Uh, situation, very fluid, um, you know, it changes all the time. There are spikes in infections rate, there are spikes uh, um, also in vaccination rates, as we've seen uh, in Europe. The Europeans continue to vaccinate uh, 
strongly, and, and yet in the UK, uh, there is a, a spike in the number of infections. So every single country is dealing with this issue differently, obviously, and, and each of them has to, to follow the stats. And, and basically, that's what the epidemiology is all about, right? You follow the stats, you follow the infection rates, and the number of people who are vaccinated, the number of people who are getting sick, and, and you try to make the best decision for everyone. We're chatting with Frederick Dimash, the director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at Ryerson University here on the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick in for Bill this week. Fully vaccinated travelers from other places around the world are going to be allowed to enter as of September 7th. Is that going to be as big as reopening the border or bigger or, or less? It's probably not going to be as big as we're putting the border to the U.S. Uh, like I said, you know, the date was chosen uh, at the beginning of September. It's basically the end of the summer travel season. By September, everybody is going back to work. Everybody is going back to school. So the number of people who will be waiting to travel to Canada will be limited for that matter. Um, but I think it's an important decision, nonetheless, for people who are doing business. Uh, remember that the restrictions were not only for uh, leisure travelers, but also for business travelers. Um, of course, you know, people who travel for essential reasons were allowed to come in and out, but there are lots of business going on also where people have to travel, and, and those uh, travelers have been restricted in the past 18 months. So uh, this, this will be um, a welcome decision for them. Do you get the sense that America is waiting to see how this border reopening, at least on our side, goes, and then they'll make their decision? It's a possibility. I think they're they're waiting uh, and, and seeing what's happening. One thing we need to say as well, we need them more than they need us. Um, we have seen in the past few weeks already, um, I would say even in the past two or three months, that the, the American travel industry is going back almost to normal just within their own market. Why? Because they are such a big market, right? And, and they, they travel within the United States, uh, plane booking, hotel booking, and seeing great signs of improvement, whereas the, the Canadian industry is still lagging behind. Why? Because we don't have as big of a market. So I, I would suggest that Canada needs international travelers a lot more than Americans do need international travelers and Canadian travelers. It'll be interesting to see how American travelers respond to COVID-19 rules and regulations and restrictions on this side of the border, because there are some states that have really abandoned all uh, restrictions. So that, that'll be an interesting scenario in uh, in about a month. Yes, and, and we need to see what's going to happen, because the, the announcement was not very clear. Um, we still don't know what procedures you know will be followed to to control at the border, for example. Testing is still, you know, we, we're not sure under which conditions that's going to happen. We don't quite know whether the uh, conditions will be the same for um, um, the, the road uh, border and the air border as well. And, and one thing that I would um, ask also for, for the government is consistency across the provinces, because as you know, still today, there's still some inconsistencies within Canada. And it's going to be difficult for, for travelers, uh, wherever they come from, to travel to Canada if you don't have very clear information about what to expect. That's a good point. We will wait and watch and see what happens. Frederick Dimanche, thanks for the time today. 
You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. Frederick Dimash is the director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at Ryerson University. Uh, both American and international travelers, when they do arrive as of August 9th and September 7th, will have to submit a proof of negative COVID-19 test before they get here. So there is that added layer, fingers crossed, of protection uh, once they do arrive. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is in Hamilton today for a couple of events. He's speaking this hour to those gathered at the Hamilton Mountain Mosque for the uh, uh, marking of the Muslim Feast of Sacrifice at 11.30 this morning. He's going to be visiting Indwell's Royal Oak Dairy on Robert Street for a housing announcement. Today on Global News at 5.30, Global Anchor Farah Nasser goes one-on-one with the Prime Minister. The decisions that every country makes is in regards to its own protection of its own citizens. And from the very beginning, uh, we've put measures in that were not reciprocated by the United States. You can still fly down to Florida unvaccinated in the middle of the pandemic. That's just a snippet of what you will hear later on today. And with a sneak preview, here is Global's Farah Nasser. Farah, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing well. Thanks for coming on. I know you have a busy day today. Um, what did you discuss with the PM? Oh, well, we, oh, there were so many topics that we wanted to get to, but, uh, you know, you, when you interview the prime minister, you're usually given 12 to 15 minutes, sometimes less. Uh, we stretched it out to 15. We decided we wanted to go over things that the prime minister, um, hasn't really been pressed on in press conferences. So, uh, the topics of, you know, reconciliation and the criminal investigation into what's happened at those residential schools. We also spoke about, uh, the, the, misconduct, the sexual misconduct um, allegations in the, in the Canadian military, some say is in crisis right now. Um, and uh, we spoke about Islamophobia and, um, you know, Bill 21, the very controversial bill banning uh, religious um, symbols in Quebec. Uh, and then, of course, whether he's going for an election, you know, whether he's, he's going to be calling an election this fall uh, during a pandemic when, you know, most people have are dealing with personal struggles and, and financial struggles and looking for jobs. Is he going to be calling an election during this time? Well, let's start there. Did you get the sense that he is itching to make that call? Because for, for me, as soon as he shaved off the beard, I thought, okay, here we go. Election yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people felt the same way you did. Um, you know, he certainly felt well prepared in the interview. Like it was like he'd been he'd been preparing for these tough questions, and he knew exactly how to answer them. And you know, you hear him in press conferences sometimes searching for words or, um, you know, searching for thought. He was so on message, and he was so clear in what he wanted to say and what he wanted to get across, uh, no matter how tough uh, the, the question was. So you know, I was joking that while many of us were honing our, our pandemic hobbies, this this guy was likely preparing for for what's to come. Um, and then, you know, you add to that all the announcements that are happening across the country, especially in writings that he needs to get that majority that he desires. So, you know, it's it's not very far off when you put like all the clues together. But of course, he still says no, focused on governing um, and that he's always ready. It's a, it's a minority minority government. But of course, the House isn't sitting. So this decision is now on him. So we'll see what happens. The uh, COVID-19 dynamic is still obviously very much at play. The border reopening announcement yesterday maybe have you know added a little bit f- uh, more fuel to the election fire. But yeah, there are some important issues that are uh, still need to be discussed. The Islamophobia Summit is later on this week. 61 recommendations are being made there. You mentioned the, you know, the military misconduct fiasco, reconciliation. These are heavy topics. 
Yeah, they certainly are. There's no light moments in the interview, I'll tell you that. Uh, but but they, they are heavy topics, but they're topics that I think are going to matter in the election. Of course, the economy is going to matter. Building back is going to matter. But I think that our country has really undergone a shift, whether it comes, when, when, you know, when it comes to how we've, we've you know, um, dealt with this file. I mean, the, the, how the government's dealt with this file. Uh, he, he, remember, has said, said at the beginning of his mandate in 2015 that, you know, this was the most important relationship to him. Reconciliation was a key item that he wanted to, to make real progress on and, 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 and sustainable progress. And he, when you talk to people in Indigenous communities, which we did preparing for this interview, uh, a lot of concern that I heard, and again, this is not a monolithic entity when we talk about Indigenous communities, but from the people I at least spoke to, um, many people feel that he's saying one thing and doing the other. You know, the government is still in court with residential school survivors who are looking for their records at St. Anne's School here in Ontario. Um, and even when you talk to Muslim Canadians, you know, he'll, he'll speak about that he's against, you know, Bill 21 and he speaks out for Islamophobia, but he hasn't really done everything in his power to stop it. Was there any uh, surprise moments for you, not necessarily in terms of what he said, but how he mm-hmm. said it? I think that the biggest surprise for me was the the tone shift when we talked about the military misconduct. Uh, out of everything we spoke about, that was the thing that it was clear he didn't want to I mean, he expected it, I'm sure, the question, because Global News broke the story and his interview was on Global, but um, he, he was, he, he got tense at a, at a moment there. It got quite tense, actually. Um, and he, he basically almost accused, well, he did accuse the media. He said, you know, you guys are twisting the story. You're not getting all the facts in there. You're telling Canadians the half-truth about Harjit Sajjan, his defense minister, who, he, who he's kept throughout this, uh, you know, it's been six months since we broke the story. So um, I think... I think that was a moment that I was like, okay, he's, I've, I've hit a nerve here. Um, and that surprised me because it was very cool and calm and collected the entire interview. So election call next week then? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But it, look, it's everyone. <laughs> I'm sure you are doing the same thing. And you're in our newsroom are doing the same thing. I mean, we're like looking at the calendar. We're looking at, you know, the dates between the red drop and, yeah. and the election. We'll see. Well, Governor General is installed on Monday, so it could happen as soon as next week, we uh, we think. Uh, Far, really appreciate the time. Looking forward to seeing the interview at 5.30 uh, today on Global News. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Farah Nasser is a Global News anchor with Global News, joining us here on The Bill Kelly Show on 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton, and uh, not only one of my favorite anchors on the Global News staff, but... Uh, really looking forward to, you know, the, the Q&A, the banter back and forth, because... No, hey, interviewing the prime minister, you don't get to do that every day. In fact, we made a request to get uh, Mr. Trudeau on the show this morning and his handler saying, eh, we're doing you know this, that, and the other thing. We don't really have the time, which is understandable. I'm sure once the writ is dropped, they'll be knocking on the door saying, hey, can we come on the air? That's usually how it works uh, during an election campaign. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Foreign state-sponsored actors will try to interfere in the next Canadian federal election. I guess we shouldn't be surprised. We've all heard the stories and have reacted to it from the 2016 U.S. presidential election in which uh, Russia is accused of getting its hands into, although the Kremlin still denies that. The communications security establishment saying that changes made around the world to respond to the pandemic, such as incorporating new technology in the voting process has increased the threat of foreign mischief. And of course it has. When you go from paper to electronic, anything digital can be hacked, attacked, influenced, tweaked, changed. Russia, China, Iran at the top of the list. 
They have conducted most of the observed cyber threat activity against democratic processes worldwide, including, obviously, of note here in the West. Our guest is Marcus Colgas, a senior fellow with the McDonnell Laurier Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. And we're going to talk to him about you know, what this all means in terms of this election, the upcoming election. We know it's going to be happening. It could happen. The writ could drop as early as next week. As you know, that Mary Simon is going to be installed on Monday as Canada's Governor General. So come next week, we could be in full election mode. And that could be, you know, an interesting development if we start to get interfered with, if I can put it that way. Uh, Marcus, good morning. How are you? Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for coming on. Um, you know, simple question off the top. Should we be worried? Uh, yes, <laughs> we, we, we should very much be worried. Um, as you mentioned uh, at, in your introduction, the um, Canadian security establishment has just released a report that uh, states that it's, uh, that it's very likely, that means 80 to 90% likely, that uh, we, our election uh, will be interfered with. Um, in the past, uh, both CSIS and CSE have uh, have stated that uh, you know going back to even our you know 2015 election, uh, that was also interfered with. Um, and our democracy uh, in general, our media spaces, um, and and you know our national uh, our in, in our information environment has been constantly under attack by uh, foreign malign foreign actors. Um, I would say for the, the most of the past decade. And so, um, you know, one thing that I, I, I would say is that, um, you know, it's it's a near certainty. It is a certainty that our election uh, will come under attack. And I'm not so, talking about the infrastructure. I'm talking about the debate. We can talk about that a little bit more later. Um, but our democracy has been under attack. And, um, and from my work at uh, disinfowatch.org with the McDonnell-Laurie Institute, we've, uh, we've been tracking this, uh, certainly for the past year with COVID. Um, and we are under constant bombardment of uh, foreign disinformation, foreign influence operations on a various number of topics. And so we're already under attack. Um, it's not a question of if, if will, will this happen during the election? It's, it's happening right now. Um, and I think we need to start taking some serious steps um, to defend our democracy uh, against further attacks. And certainly with an election coming up, um, you know, that, that those attacks will only become more pronounced. You referenced a few things there. What tactics do these bad actors use? What, what are some of the examples that you can point to? Well, you know, in your introduction, you mentioned that the election process itself will will come under attack. Um, you know, I, the Canadian elections uh, from a point of infrastructure are pretty safe. We use paper ballots. Um, and so there's, there's very little di- digital infrastructure with regards to the voting process that can be hacked. You can't hack paper ballots. Um, you know, I, you know, our voting, our, our uh, polling places are, are, are well watched. And, you know, it's just, it's, it would be very, very difficult to do that. Um, but from a hacking perspective, you know, uh, databases are still vulnerable. Um, you know, political parties, their databases, um, they can be hacked. The emails of various different candidates can be hacked. You know, we saw this happen in 2016 with the uh, Democratic Party and Hillary Clinton's campaign, uh, those emails were hacked by, by Russian uh, intelligence units. 
Um, and those emails were then exposed to embarrass the candidate. Uh, the same sort of thing is is entirely possible. Uh, this can happen in Canada. But the um, you know my greater concern with all of this is that uh, these foreign actors, what they do is they is they latch on to sensitive issues uh, and and the ones that are that divide Canadians. Um, you know, this can include, you know, the environment, uh, certainly the Arctic, uh, Indigenous affairs. It's, that's the, the residential schools is one issue that we're looking at very closely right now. And what they do is that they take these uh, uh, positions on the far left and the far right, and they further amplify them. They push them hard on platforms like social media, which, um, you know, uh, nearly 80% of Canadians use every single day. So we're very much exposed to these these uh, nefarious uh, narratives that be, that get pushed, and the ultimate goal is to divide us um, and to erode our democracy, to erode our trust in media and society, and certainly the election process and our elected officials. And so, with that objective in mind, I, you know, because in an election we are debating those sensitive issues. Um, I'm certain that uh, those state actors, again, whether they're on social media or, or state-based media, will try to push us further and further apart so that we fight with each other. And we can see what the outcome of that is like. Um, you know, January 6th in Washington, D.C., when you saw the storming of the Capitol, that's what happens when these sorts of uh, efforts are allowed to go unchecked and when they're out of control. And, um, and so if we don't want to see a situation like that, uh, we need to start, uh, we need to make sure that we have measures in place uh, to uh, to ensure that our election is uh, is defended against those sorts of narratives. And uh, we need to take measures, long-term measures, and not just ones that are, that are uh, targeting our elections, but long-term measures to make sure that we detoxify our information environment right now. Because especially with COVID, it's become so toxic um, there's so much, uh, you know, quote unquote, fake news, um, disinformation floating about. And that's, uh, you know, ultimately, it, it's like I said, it's intended to confuse us and turn us against each other and erode our trust in our democracy and our media. Marcus Kolga is a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. He's our guest here on the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick Samprin in for Bill Kelly this week. We're talking about foreign actors uh, invading our election space, if you will. And you pointed to a number of different things, whether it's disinformation, a lack of trust with the media, uh, increased divisiveness between one side against the other. It sounds like these foreign actors are doing a great job. Well, sure. I mean, we saw the the results of the 2016 U.S. federal election. You know, these were these were, you know, the outcome. I, it's not. It wasn't necessarily influenced uh, by you know Russian disinformation, Russian influence operations. But what uh, what they were did manage to do was turn Americans against each other, and that chaos that we saw uh, for four years, and we can we continue to see it today. Um, that was largely a result of uh, Russian influence operations and disinformation. Um, they did all of that, uh, all of that damage uh, at a cost of, of less than a single uh, army tank, a main battle tank, um, and that's cheap. And the problem is that we don't impose costs on, on this sort of activity. Um, you know, countries like Russia, primarily Russia, but China is, is getting more active in this space as well, certainly Iran. Um, these actors are allowed to operate with impunity. 
there is no deterrence for them to do that. They they can continue to attack our democracy. They continue to attack our dis- our information environment, um, and we're we're not pushing back. Um, there's no reason for them to stop doing this because the cost is so cheap, and the impact of their efforts is so high. We've seen this during COVID. Um, you know, uh, President Biden just uh, commented that yesterday about the impact of of uh, disinformation on vaccine hesitancy. Uh, and with the Delta violence, uh, d- d- sorry, the Delta variant uh, uh, rising in, in the US, um, they're headed for some serious problems. And a lot of this has to do with disinformation, the disinformation that's being spread on, on social media. So not only are they, um, they targeting our democracy and turning ourselves against each other, they're making us sicker and killing us with uh, with this sort of disinformation um and and we have to recognize that these foreign actors they look at these look for these uh, polarizing uh issues and and they they exacerbate them that's what that's what they're doing and you know when back you know 20 or 30 years ago when we could uh you know trust mainstream media mainstream media was you know, they presented us with a, a set of uh, commonly agreed upon facts upon which we could, you know, have our national debate. That that's that's disappeared. Uh, you know, that our trust in mainstream media has has sort of eroded over the past uh, decade or so, uh, and certainly the prominence of social media has caused helped cause this this uh, this situation that we're in. And uh, and the unfortunate part is that we've the trust that we once had in, in mainstream media, we're putting it into uh, social media as well. So we're tr- the the eighty percent of Canadians that are using Facebook on a on a daily basis are trusting almost everything that they see, and and these these foreign actors are taking advantage of that too. And so uh, you know we've got uh, some serious concerns uh, and, and and serious threats uh, at, uh, in various different areas here, um, whether it's the delivery platforms, the erosion of trust in, in mainstream media, and the efforts of these. Uh, these foreign actors, uh, and uh, you know the, the situation is not improving. And this is one thing that the C- the CSE report points out is that that foreign interfer- interference and disinformation is a rising problem. It's not it's not stabilizing. It's only getting worse again because we have not uh, imposed any sort of costs or any sort of deterrence against it. We've not taken efforts to clean up our information space. So we've got to get our act together soon. I'm not sure that we can do anything in, ahead of this uh, this coming election, but it's important that Canadians, um, the candidates in these elections and the media are aware that we, they are going to be targeted with this information. They should be more aware of it. So what has Canada been doing and, and what do we plan to do to, uh, you know, kind of uh, make sure that everything is on the up and up, so to speak? I know it's a tall order. Yeah, it's a real tall order. And, and, I, and I appreciate the fact that you've, you've asked that question, Rick, because I've been asking this as well. Um, certainly for the past a number of years uh, since, you know, two federal elections ago, uh, because I was, I was keeping an eye on it then and saw that it was a problem. Um, in, in 2019, um, then uh, Minister of uh, Democratic Institutions, Karina Gold, did a, did a pretty good job of, of setting up, standing up uh, certain uh, organizations, groups within government, nonpartisan groups, um, to keep an eye on and track uh, foreign uh, disinformation, and and they did a overall a a, um, a pretty good job um, of of doing that. Uh, there was a rapid reaction mechanism that was sent a, set up with Global Affairs to track disinformation, and, a, and an election protocol system, 
whereby if there were uh, uh, any sort of narratives or any sort of influence operations that met a certain threshold that they would then be exposed uh, nationally. So those things were put in place. The sad thing, and they were a good start, uh, but after the election, when it was over and the, the new government, so to speak, uh, was put in place, uh, all of those protocols, except for the one that in global affairs disappeared. And we've not taken any sort of, uh, we've not, the government's not articulated any sort of approach to this problem since then. And certainly we haven't heard of wh about whether they're going to be replicating any of those, um, those groups ahead of this coming election. Um, the problem, the real problem that I see in all of this is that the government seems to be looking at this problem as an election problem. And it's not an election problem. The election is one attack vector that these foreign governments use to, uh, to destabilize our democracy. It only happens for a month, sometimes it's two months, but it's only a short period. These foreign actors are in fact operating 24 seven to attack us. And so the government, what they need to be doing is taking a whole of government and a whole of society approach, much like the Swedes and Finns, the Estonians, the Taiwanese do, um, in order to protect our entire democracy. And, and this is one of our, our true failings. And so I'm, I hope that at least during this election campaign, um, this will come up uh, as an issue, given the fact that uh, we've seen the destabilization that we've, that, that's happened in the, the United States. January 6th really should have been an alarm bell and a red flag for all of us uh, because we're not safe from that happening here. And so, my, like I said, my real hope is that uh, during this election campaign, the all parties will talk about this, will, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, ensure that media and, and Canadians are aware that this is a threat and that moving forward, we take a, a more comprehensive approach because I'll tell you, uh, you know, until now, we've done very little to address this problem. That's uh, frightening stuff. Marcus, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for your insights. Thanks for having me on, Rick. Marcus Kolga is a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. We've been chatting about foreign actors seeking to interfere in the next Canadian election, which could come in a matter of days, weeks, uh, or a couple of months. We shall see. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.